Welcome back to Atomic Hobo. We have another guest this week. I was lucky enough to speak to Joshua Pollock. Now you know the deal, we don't waste time on this podcast. Josh will introduce himself and we'll go on with the interview. My name is Joshua Pollock. I'm the editor of the Nonproliferation Review and a senior research associate at the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies, which is part of the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. I'm located in Washington, D.C., not in Monterey, California, and not in Middlebury, Vermont. So uh, we will start with tactical nuclear weapons. Um, I seem to be asking every guest on the podcast about tactical nukes because um, that's where I see the biggest danger, at least in Ukraine. Uh, of, of course, though, I am not an expert on, on military or weapons. My expertise is civil defence. So could you talk to us, Josh, about tactical nuclear weapons? Um, and I note that you stressed on Twitter recently that these are not necessarily small nuclear weapons, and that indeed a Russian tactical nuclear weapon could be the same yield as the Hiroshima bomb. And no one thinks of Hiroshima as, of course, a small nuclear weapon. So do we misunderstand what a tactical nuclear weapon actually is? Uh, Tactical is a confusing term because its meaning depends on context. And it it is not formally defined in in any universal way uh, that that I've seen. the, the origins of the tactical strategic distinction go back to uh, interwar thinking about air power. Uh, and so they, they are pre-nuclear. In essence, what tactical meant was uh, for use on the battlefield, uh, where, whereas strategic bombing uh, meant bombing that would be conducted uh, deep inside enemy territory, uh, not at battlefield targets, but at targets that would affect the the enemy's uh, ability or willingness to continue to make war. Uh, So that that could mean factories, that could mean uh, the the public at large as a target, so-called morale bombing, uh, or or perhaps it, it could mean military headquarters or uh, rear bases. So strategic versus tactical doesn't doesn't have the same clear cut uh, meaning, I I think, when when we try to to put it against a weapon because a given weapon could be used for either of those purposes. But in general, uh, in nuclear uh, terminology, uh, the word strategic has been attached to intercontinental range weapons uh, that are controlled under the uh, SALT and START series of, of treaties uh, between uh, the United States, the Soviet Union, and the United States and Russia. And tactical has come to mean everything else. Sometimes we see the word theater used uh, instead of tactical. Sometimes we see non-strategic. And non-strategic nuclear weapons is probably the most clinical way of, of describing it. In Russia today, that includes many different types of weapons, uh, everything from uh, a nuclear warhead that could be fitted onto a short-range missile like Iskander, 
to um, a nuclear warhead that's used in air or missile defenses and and clearly will, will never be seen on any battlefield in, in Ukraine or beyond. So is it right to say that um, really there's no such thing as strategic and tactical um, and nuclear weapon, all nuclear weapons are simply nuclear weapons? Do you think it's useful to divide them up and give them titles like that? I think that um, it's it carries a meaning within a certain context. In the American-Russian context, the divide is pretty clear. It, uh, strategic weapons are accounted for under the New START Treaty and count towards its limits. Uh, non-strategic weapons don't. So, uh, for example, the uh, Iskander nuclear warhead stockpile, however large that is, simply not covered under the treaty. We don't know how many there are. Uh, we don't know uh, where they are, where they're kept. Uh, there's no particular uh, legal limit on their numbers. Uh, and we just uh, don't put them under the spotlight of treaty verification measures. The same thing goes for the perhaps a few hundred uh, American nuclear weapons on uh, bases in, in NATO Europe. Uh, they, they just uh, are, they're in the background, you could say. They're, they're, they are not uh, heavily publicized and they, they uh, are not tallied in any public way or in any formal exchanges of data with the Russians. Um, I know I didn't put this in my list of questions, Josh, but could you, could you give us a quick summary of what the New START Treaty is? Certainly. The, the New START Treaty is, is the treaty currently in effect between the United States and Russia that imposes limits on strategic uh, nuclear weapons. Now, because a, a nuclear warhead is a small item and it is a, a very secret item, its characteristics uh, are, are not uh, something that countries are eager to share with each other. Uh, the verification uh, and, and indeed the, the limitations imposed under the treaty focus less on the warheads themselves and more on the delivery systems. So the New START Treaty limits uh, both the United States and Russia to a certain number of deployed ICBMs, a certain number of deployed SLBMs, which is to say submarine launched ballistic missiles, and a certain number of nuclear capable bombers. Each bomber counts as one warhead in, in the tally because it's just very difficult to know how many are there associated with the bomber. They're, they're usually not kept loaded on the bomber in any case. So it, it's just an accounting rule. It's just a convention. The numbers, the, the, the uh, exact numbers, which I don't recall off the top of my head at this moment, uh, but are easily uh, easy to look up, are uh, stylized, let's say. They, they, they follow these counting rules and they don't represent an actual number of, of deployed warheads. Uh, and the other question I had was, what do you think is the likelihood of a tactical nuclear strike in Ukraine? Um, my worry, for what it's worth, is that Putin might do it if he is desperate or humiliated. So hmm. should we be worried about that? I, I think we always have to worry about nuclear weapons. Uh, the question is how much? 
the the answer is elusive. Uh, I would point out that the only nuclear weapons ever used in battle were, were those at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Tactical weapons, however precisely one defines them, have never been used. So that tells us right there that it is in general not likely that they will see use. The question is, what circumstances might change that? Uh, you mentioned uh, humiliation. And, and this is a reflection of the problems of, of nuclear command and control. When uh, an individual leader, perhaps with the endorsement of senior officials, perhaps totally on his own, can, can make these decisions, we have to start thinking about the perceptions and psychology of that leader, and it becomes a mind-reading exercise. Uh, we don't uh, have the necessary insights, I think, to give a definitive answer. Uh, on the other hand, we, we, can, we can at least talk in some generalities about, about the, the circumstances and the pathways that, that could lead to nuclear use. I tended to think of tactical weapons as uh, designed primarily to counter uh, an onslaught of superior conventional forces that are threatening one's own uh, regime or, or the, even the independence or, or continued existence of one's country. So for example, in Pakistan, a, an entire generation of, of short-range nuclear systems have been developed, uh, and yes, they call them tactical nuclear weapons, uh, in order to counteract uh, the, the Indian military, which the Pakistanis regard as um, able to cross the frontier, e even, even if the Pakistanis oppose it, and able to threaten Pakistani cities, including their capital, which are very close to the frontier. So they would use the, the existence, they use the existence of these short range weapons, these tactical nuclear weapons, to give the Indians uh, second thoughts about ever threatening or launching such an invasion. Similarly, the North Koreans have developed uh, an arsenal of, of short range ballistic missiles that they would use against ports and airfields in South Korea and Japan if the United States ever started to build up forces in, in the region to prepare for an invasion. So they, they, they can use that to give the United States second thoughts about trying it. And, and if it actually happens, then they would be forced to a decision about whether, whether or not to, to proceed with that plan. But Russia doesn't face those kinds of choices. They're is no comparable threat to Putin's regime or to the Russian state, not from Ukraine. However much Putin and his senior officials talk as, as if NATO were poised to, to roll into Russia, I, I think they do have an appreciation that this is not imminently the case. And uh, I certainly hope that um, the value they place on any semblance of victory in Ukraine is not so great that they think it's more important than Russia's continued existence. So I, I think the, the, the risks under the present circumstances are 
uh, modest, let's say, but by their nature, they are never zero. And, and that makes it an uncomfortable topic to, to discuss because you cannot offer anyone uh, any complete assurances uh, that, that they won't come into play. That's in the nature of, of nuclear weapons. I do think that President Biden, uh, in his insistence that the United States will not get involved in the, the fighting directly, will not send troops to Ukraine, and, and we see this attitude echoed in, in other NATO countries. I think he has made a very clear and sensible decision that reduces the risks considerably, uh, because we don't know what happens once the the armies of, of two nuclear superpowers are engaged in an all-out fight. Uh, this, this is something that our leaders over the course of the Cold War strove increasingly with time to avoid after a few close calls early on, most obviously in Cuba. But that, that's a lesson that Biden seems to have absorbed. And, and I would say Putin also Show, is showing some restraint. We don't see him attacking training centers in Germany or, or logistical bases in Poland. Both sides are showing a lot of restraint when it, when it comes to each other. And indeed, I'd say that the caution the United States is showing is, is um, almost to a fault. I, I read yesterday that uh, with the reopening of the American embassy in Kyiv, uh, there are no Marine Corps guards at the embassy, as is traditional at American embassies. You know, they've got very snappy uniforms. They look good. They, they, they're part of, of what an, an American embassy is for, for reasons I, I'm not entirely familiar with. But instead, the State Department is providing its own security and the Ukrainians are providing security. And there are no American troops in Ukraine, period, as far as I can tell. Uh, so that that's really taking things to quite an extreme. And I think it's for this reason. Our next question, obviously, tactical nuclear weapons, as you said, sometimes known as battlefield nuclear weapons. But what if Russia detonated a single low-yield nuke, not on the battlefield, but over, say, an empty sea or stretch of land, intending it to be meant as a threat or a signal if they did that, what would NATO's reaction be? Or perhaps a better question is, what do you think NATO's reaction should be? That's hard to say. Uh, this sort of scenario gets played out in war games periodically. I think that um, the optimal response probably is to use that event as um, a rallying point uh, against the offending party. Uh, for the Russians to conduct uh, a nuclear detonation in the air uh, would violate the Partial Test Ban Treaty of 1963, uh, which was negotiated between uh, the Soviet Union, the United States, and the United Kingdom, and forbids um, all nuclear tests except underground tests. So uh, they, they would be... Uh, trampling on, on um, their, their own treaty commitments. And, and that's to say nothing, of course, of the, the comprehensive test ban treaty, which, which the Russians and Americans have signed, but, but not, not ratified. It, it certainly would give people pause. Uh, I, I think that is, of course, that would be the point. But 
how leaders would respond to it is a good question. The United States could could respond in kind. It, it could do the same kind of muscle flexing. What that would achieve, I'm not sure, except to drag us down to, to the, the Russians' level. But Russia still has diplomatic support from India, China, and, and uh, various others uh, around the world. Uh, they're not as completely isolated as uh, the West might like. I, th- I think they would not be doing themselves any favors. They, they would um, be further blackening their own image and, and it, it would be um, shooting themselves in the other foot <laughs> as well as, as the first one that already has a bleeding hole in it. Uh, so I, I think that they have very good reasons not to do it. And uh, the United States, Great Britain, France would, would have very good reasons not to follow suit if they did. I think we would would pounce on it and, and should pounce on it and and use it to um, put the Russians even further in, into the box of their own creation. Okay. It, maybe that would help bring bring the war to an, an early end on on better terms. I assume uh, it would sober everyone up, uh, including the Russians themselves. But it's very hard to predict how these things would play out. Okay. Thank you. And if we can take that question and um, push it up a notch, if, and obviously it's a huge if, if Russia used a tactical nuke in Ukraine against soldiers or against civilians causing mass death, what do you think NATO's reaction should be? Um, I'm guilty of assuming that any nuclear launch would lead to retaliation and then Armageddon, which I know is a very 1980s way of thinking about it. But um, obviously we don't necessarily have to immediately jump into matching them and then escalating so how could it go if they used one tactical nuke on civilians or soldiers? That, I think, is, is something that does indeed get played out in war games all the time. And there, there is no good answer to these sorts of scenarios. If they had targeted a, a, a treaty ally in this process, if, say, the bomb landed in Poland or Lithuania, I, I think you would see strong pressures on the American president to find a response and probably a nuclear response. I'm, I'm certain that any, any nuclear forces that weren't on alert would go on alert at a bare minimum. But for, for a, a country like Ukraine that is not a treaty ally and that is not um, assured of, of uh, protection uh, by NATO, including by its nuclear forces, I think the answer is less clear cut. Certainly this, this kind of an event would create profound opprobrium. I mean, th- this, this is um, uh, not only um, destroying the norms against nuclear use, but, but it, is, it, it would be a, a massacre and, and uh, to attack a non-nuclear armed country that is not even in an alliance with a nuclear armed state uh, would trample assurances that Russia and, and others have, have given to the world, that, that they would never do this, never even threaten this. So uh, go, going back to uh, the mid-1990s, at least. So at that point, I, I think the global revulsion would, would be 
extraordinary. Uh, I also imagine that this could even um, create new pressures uh, for disarmament, public pressures. Right now, the public is not very engaged on, on nuclear issues. As you know, our, our, the global public worries more about climate change uh, and uh, issues of, of a variety of other issues uh, than, than they do uh, the, the threat of nuclear weapons. I, I would go so far as to say that most people in the West probably aren't that aware that, that the superpower nuclear arsenals and all their glory are still present uh, in the world uh, and still on alert, albeit at, at lower numbers than during the Cold War. But uh, as, as you and I know, they never went away. The, the operational practices didn't change dramatically and uh, the, the threat is still there. So this would be a wake up call for the world. I understand that Russia has far more tactical nuclear weapons than, than NATO or America have in their stockpile. Um, so why do you know why Russia have amassed so many tactical nuclear weapons and what do they see as the advantage of having such a large tactical stockpile? Well, uh, this is one area that did change at the end of the Cold War. It used to be that the United States had thousands of uh, nuclear warheads down to the level of artillery shells. And, and uh, at, at one point, even, even the, the Davy Crockett recoilless rifle all over West Germany, South Korea, uh, and, and to, to a lesser extent, other locations. And until the early 70s, there were a lot of nuclear warheads in Okinawa, for example. And a after uh, the Persian Gulf War of 1991 and the uh, series of changes that got underway in the Soviet Union around that time, the uh, first Bush administration took action to start removing those weapons, concentrating them at, at central bases, not, not at forward bases with army units in West Germany, not on ships at sea. It used to be that aircraft carriers and other surface combatants and attack submarines all had nuclear weapons on board. Uh, but in the early 1990s, these, these were all removed. And the Russians uh, did the same thing by and large, just not to the same extent. Uh, they actually had a lot of assistance from the United States in the form of the Nunn-Luger program in, in consolidating their, their arsenals into central locations. They just seem not to have gone to the same extent in removing them from, from all possible locations. Both sides have, have held on to a few. Uh, in the United States, uh, we've held on to a few bombs in, in uh, a few European countries because it is symbolic of our security commitment. And I think that removing them would send an unintended message. Uh, it's not because they have any particular value. Uh, the, the Russians are not poised to invade Italy, for example. Uh, on the Russian side, uh, again, we don't know how many there are. This is not accounted for in any treaty uh, or, or 
any transparency process, but there are estimates based on what the Russians put into the news uh, and what they publicize. And it tends to be in the range of somewhere between one and 2000 perhaps, but that again includes um, uh, warheads for, for air defense missiles and, and coastal defense missiles. The, the, the sorts of things that uh, the United States had early in the Cold War and did not hold on to. Uh, so some of that may, may reflect just a, a lack of technological sophistication. So, so the Russians don't rely as much on hit to kill ballistic missile interceptors. The, the interceptors they have around Moscow have been nuclear tipped for, for decades, perhaps because they think that's the only thing that will work. So when we talk about their, the size of their tactical arsenal, that's part of it. On the other hand, we are also talking about uh, potentially nuclear cruise missiles that might be on a submarine, that uh, warheads for the, the Iskander M ballistic missile, um, uh, and, and things of that variety. So, so you know, what we stereotypically think of as, as tactical nuclear weapons, in other words, a short range forward deployed bomb. I think that, that uh, the reason that they hold on to these things uh, is an insurance policy against uh, anyone in the West, or for that matter, China, getting, getting an idea that their superior ground forces uh, could be used uh, to, to threaten Russia itself. Uh, the United States and its Western allies just have less and less use for these things because our conventional forces are so sophisticated and so dominant. Uh, again, it's, it is not a coincidence that uh, the push to get rid of most of these weapons took place right after the Persian Gulf War, or soon after, uh, when the, the vast superiority of Western arms over Soviet arms had just been dramatically demonstrated. So to the extent that these weapons are meant to counteract someone's conventional superiority, I think that's the answer for why the Russians hold on to more of them than the West does. Okay, thank you. And our last question, Josh, um, how long do you think the nuclear taboo can hold? Um, do you think what Russia is doing currently and the constant low level threats obviously there are a lot of threats made on russian state tv about using them but um i don't know how seriously they're taken or if they're intended to be taken seriously but do you think all this constant talk of it in such a cavalier fashion by the russians or by some russians uh, weakens the nuclear taboo and if so how long do you think it will hold do you think we'll see a nuclear detonation in anger in our lifetimes i'm not going to ask you how old you are <laughs> I, I have a few decades left, God willing, and I certainly hope not to see it. I, I think the most likely scenarios are the ones I mentioned earlier, Pakistan or North Korea, because they are threatened by a conventionally superior opponent. Uh, and and uh, I think also because they are not content to simply uh, rely on, on their nuclear counter to the conventional threat uh, in a purely defensive spirit, but, but take advantage of that uh, to, to harass their opponents uh, with, with uh, terrorist attacks in India, in, in Pakistan's case, with 
with um, ambushes and, and artillery attacks and, and you know, attacks at South Korean ships at sea that we sometimes see, it, it is entirely possible that we could see an escalating conflict involving either of those countries because they don't just sit back defensively behind this nuclear shield because they, they there's this constant temptation to take advantage of it, to, to assume that they have their enemies in check and can, can prod them uh, for, for, for advantage. I, I think those are the big risks. As for the taboo, yes, making nuclear threats degrades the norm against making nuclear threats and, and perhaps therefore also against using them. Uh, it, it is something uh, to be condemned. Uh, having, having said that, I think that Putin's own threats and those of, of the, the um, Kremlin spokesman have been fairly uh, narrowly phrased. Putin has indicated that anyone who starts fighting with the Russians in Ukraine or attacks Russia itself is at risk. I, I noticed that he hasn't gone beyond that and that, that uh, the, the Kremlin spokesman has mainly just restated Russian doctrine about when in the abstract they might use these, which is framed in fairly defensive terms. Now, words are just words at some level, and, and you don't know what they will or won't do under what circumstances. Nobody does, including the person making the threat. But having said that, the, the felt need to make this point, to remind us that they have usable nuclear weapons, sets off these ripples of fear, anxiety, speculation, and it's not clear where that ends. I, I think that is not healthy, generally speaking. But there are still, over the long term, there's, there are scenarios I worry about more. You've obviously talked a lot about Pakistan, about North Korea, and it's a reminder to me that it's not just about America and Russia. I'm still stuck in the Cold War, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's a reminder there's lots of other danger out there. Someone's got to be. <laughs> That's the end of our conversation. And thanks again to Joshua Pollock for speaking to me. You can find him on Twitter at Joshua underscore Pollock. That's P-O-L-L-A-C-K. Glasgow listeners might be tempted to spell it differently. There is a district of our city called Pollock, but with a different spelling. And if you enjoy this podcast and would like to support it with a monthly donation, you can do that at Patreon. Please go to my site, which is patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. You get various rewards for joining, one of which, and it certainly seems to be the most popular, is access to extra podcast episodes. And let me thank my newest patrons, Philip Henderson, Joanna Scarlett C, and Laura Freeman. Remember, you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell, on Facebook as Nuclear Britain, or on my website, juliemcdowell.com. And thank you all for listening, and I'll be back soon with another episode.